Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. And welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So in this episode, I interview Dawn Jarvis. Dawn is the author of Leading Corporate Clans and the author of The Stella Model. And she's also the Managing Director of People and OD Partners, currently living in Australia. She's got an NHS exec background. And for the past five years at the time of recording, she has been living and working in the Australian healthcare system and public services. I think this episode will appeal to anybody that is a leadership, development, coach, mentor, or an organisational leader looking for support and advice on how to lead and manage change. So Dawn gives her perspective on her facilitation approach how to get the most from an organisational change, what sorts of clients she works with and the importance of working with clients who are really and willing and open to disruption. And in this episode, I asked Dawn, how has she managed to build this successful business internationally? It's interesting. She didn't exactly say this, but she's so passionate and purposeful about what she does. And that passion and purpose and drive and fearlessness in how she approaches her work just generates constant repeat clients and constant word of mouth. And the reason why I wanted to emphasize that is somebody asked me the same question and I kind of gave a similar answer. It's just like, I love what I do and I share what I do. And people are looking for, you know, like marketing tricks and hacks. And yes, you have to market yourself. But when you've got that purpose, that passion, that drive, and when you've worked out a service or product that is truly needed, if you can deliver that in a way that's authentically you and you find your tribe, people will refer you. I really, really loved it. She's about to embark on a PhD. She's, yeah, forced to be reckoned with. I would love it if you listened. And I would love it if you share. Hey Dawn, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I am good. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. You are joining us all the way from Australia. What's the time there? It's six o'clock in the evening. It's pitch black. It's (sighs) autumn, but it's still 22 degrees. How long have you been living there? Five years full time and then a bit of backwards and forwards work before that. We were just talking before to me. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm talking to Dawn and she lives and works in Australia and she's emigrated there. And you're like, yeah, I guess so. Like, 
we connected on LinkedIn. I think we've got some mutual connections and a mutual interest in leadership and management in healthcare and the public sector. Where's your accent from? I'm from Liverpool originally. Haven't lived there since I was 18. Spent the last 20 years in the UK in Derbyshire and I've lived and worked all over the UK. And what brought you to Australia? Well, at work, I set up on my own after leaving the NHS as a consultant and I found a contract that was being let in the public sector healthcare system in Australia. I'd never heard of the Gold Coast. I've never been to Australia. And I just sort of thought, why not? Let's go see what it's like. And the work just took off. So I stayed, got locked in with COVID and stayed. What was the first contract? What were they asking you to do? They had a new general manager of the surgical division, huge healthcare system, and they merged tertiary, primary, secondary healthcare in Australia into one one organisation. So huge organisation, new general manager, never been at that level before. They wanted somebody who was a coach and a mentor, somebody who'd worked at exec level in the NHS or a public healthcare system. And someone who could do some team dynamic work with the team and help them do a bit of financial turnaround. It was almost a job spec written for me based on my background in the NHS. Yeah, I got the gig and came. And just to fill us in the background, what was your previous experience? Where did you work when you worked in the NHS? So I worked as a full-time exec director in Doncaster and Bassett Law NHS Foundation Trust. And I did a few shorter stints after that in quite a lot of different places. Leeds CCGs and the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital. Did quite a bit of work centrally for the NHS in London on financial turnaround and transformation. But I was the director of people and organisational development. So professional background is people, HR, culture. And prior to that, I was a senior civil servant in central government for over 20 years. So when people hire you, so you'll get like the brief or the spec, or it might even be word of mouth. But what people say they want and what they actually need are slightly different. And we had a conversation. What's the common theme? Why do people need people like yourself? I think there's two things that externals bring. And that's why it's really important to you know, do your due diligence on who the external is and what their experience is. Because what you want to bring when you go into an organisation is skills or capacity, so time that's missing. And you also want to bring a bit enough of a change disruptor about you. One of my old mentors used to say, she was a beautiful older Chinese lady, and she used to say, I spit in your soup. That was her phrase. And the way that she said it was like she really enjoyed disrupting. But you have to be like the system enough for them to accept you to make the change you're suggesting and different enough. And you have to sit on the outside enough so that you can hold a mirror up to the system you're trying to disrupt slightly. So I think slight disruption might be an oxymoron, but actually that's the gold dust that a really good external consultant will bring. Do you have to understand the system to be able to facilitate and support organisational development or sometimes being really removed? Can that provide a positive lens? Because we all kind of know, you know, like the same lingo and we've got that common understanding, which is really helpful and speeds things up. 
but we all to a degree are ingrained in the system can a facilitator that's got experience of working with like the aviation industry come into the healthcare system and say well what about this really really disrupt look i think to a certain extent yes but you've got to be a bit careful so the reason why I personally get used a lot and get, you know, I've always got work is because I've been at the exact level in a really challenged set of trusts in the NHS. I've had to appear at public accounts committee when I was in government. You know, I've been on the naughty step with NHS improvement and having those weekly phone calls. And I think when you've got that, you wear those kind of battle scars, shall we say, you get a level of credibility. I remember when I was in a trust and we were in financial turnaround and they brought in a load of people from one of the big four. They knew the NHS from the outside, but they'd never really worked in it. We were talking about consultants, um, PAs and SPAs. And this guy just said, oh, what's a PA? And you just think, oh, you've come in here to tell me how to make financial improvement changes. And you just don't understand my world. And I think that just chooses people off. So, yes, I think you need a real set of different eyes. And I would also say if you're going to do team coaching, which I do a lot. So I work a lot with exec teams who are in difficulties relationally or if the exec team's working really well or the top team's working really well, the organisational hump. If there's a bit of a chink in their relationships and they're not working well together, then that's when the organisation's in trouble. So it is true that a great coach, one-to-one coach or a great team coach can come in and just, if you're just working on the behaviours, can easily observe those and say, have you ever noticed that every time Tara has a good idea, Brian rolls his eyes? What's that all about? (laughs) Should we talk about that? Like, you don't need to know the NHS or the system to do that work. But if you're wanting to make shifts in operational delivery or which is all connected to the behaviour of the leaders, right? You can't do one without the other. Then it's harder to feel like people are taking you seriously if you don't know the system. So your clients hire you because you know the system, but you knew the NHS system. You didn't know the Australian health system. Are they similar? Are they completely different? They're quite similar. And if you zoom out to a world level of public health, the issues, the prevailing wicked problems are the same. You know, people getting older, sicker, more medical advancements, more demanding clientele, people choosing to Dr. Google as opposed to their GP and, you know, demanding services and ambulances ramping in ED. It's the same the world over. It's just gradations of severity. I think the different system here is that it's partially private and partially public. And doctors working in the public sector will, generally speaking, always have private rooms and do private work too. And it's just accepted. When I was in the NHS and on the exec team, if I'd have decided to go private for some health care, I would have been run out of town because I'm sort of not having faith in the system I'm working in. Whereas here, if you work in public health care and you use the public system, then people would look at you as, what were you doing? You were taking up a space in the public system of somebody who couldn't afford it and you could afford to go private. So get out of the queue and go and pay for it yourself is, is the view they take here. Wow. It's a real healthy balance. Australia as a nation has got the best of America and the best of UK in most things. I don't know if there is a best of the American healthcare system, if I'm honest, but it's got the best of the UK. It's free at the point of demand for children or you're in an accident or you suddenly have, you know, you need to call an ambulance or free at the point of delivery. 
if you, you know, have hip pain and you're going to need to have your hip replaced, you pop along to your GP. They'll ask you if you've got public health insurance or not, private health insurance rather or not. And if you've got private health insurance, they'll refer you to the person they think is best to deal with your condition. And you'll probably get seen within a week and you'll probably be on the operating table within three weeks and you'll be done and dusted and you'll pay a bit. It's called a gap. So you'll pay a gap. My son had his tonsils out last year and we ended up paying maybe about $500, which would be about 200 quid, 250 quid, I guess. Whereas if we hadn't had healthcare insurance and my son had had to go into the public system, you wait a long time for a non-urgent operation. But cancer treatment, maternity treatment, all the things that need to be done on time, the public system is, is really good. And the other thing that I think the UK could potentially learn from in terms of the Australian system is that the more you earn, the more you're expected to pay in, into public healthcare system. So if you don't take out health insurance, you have to pay a tax that's equivalent to the health insurance you would have taken out anyway. So you might as well. And that seems pretty sensible to me. And it's on a percentage basis of what you earn. I've never been to Australia and I'm going to say something really ridiculous, but my view of Australia is, you know, beautiful beaches, everybody, blonde, pretty, have, you know, having shakes, fantastic work-life balance, you know, like neighbours home and away. Is it like that everywhere? So, yes, it's like that. It's like that in loads of places. And I live on the Gold Coast, which is, you know, body beautiful, 35 kilometres of beach you know, work-life balance, getting anybody to stay in any office after 4pm, you'd never be able to achieve that, even the senior people really. And they work to live and it's a beautiful environment to be. What I didn't realise till I came to Australia, and look, I've only been here five years. So, you know, if anybody's listening to this and they, they'll all, you know, they know anything about Australian history, they'll know more about it than me. So forgive any faux pas I might make. But the health inequalities are pretty stark. There's two main health inequalities. One's living in a rural and remote community. So Australia is massive. You can't even imagine how big it is. You can see it on a map, but you can't imagine what that feels like till you live here. So I fly four hours, five hours, six hours for work. I fly three hours for a day's meeting and fly back again. People think nothing of driving nine hours, 10 hours, and then driving back the next day. It's, it's fast. Queensland, the state that I'm in, could probably fit Europe in it a couple of times over. And there's only 4 million people that live here. 95% of Australians live on 5% of Australia on both edges, right? So the West Coast and the East Coast, Sydney, Melbourne, and, and the bottom part. The top end, as we call it, the Northern Territories, really remote, and the middle of Australia, you could drive for days and not see another person. So if you happen to live in a town or on a cattle station in the middle of nowhere and you get gored by a bull or fall off your bike or whatever, or have a stroke out in the middle of a cattle field. The chances of you being able to get to a hospital that can deal with you at a tertiary level before it's too late are pretty slim. And, and people just go, well, that's the rough of the smooth. I decided to live here, so that's my lot. All of the things, like I remember North Links and Ghoul NHS Trust wanting to close down a small emergency day centre and the newspaper uproar. Don't know what it's like now. I haven't kept in touch with it. But here, you'd be closing down a centre that there's 250 kilometres before you meet the next town. And you can understand why people might have an uproar about it. But the health funding system's still the same. So they haven't got enough money to go around. 
The worst health inequality issue is the Indigenous population, the First Nations people of Australia. So, you know, Australia was populated by the oldest living, ongoing culture in the world. It goes back 70,000 years. And the disparity between expected survival is about 20 years. When the white fella come, as they call it here, when the white fella arrived, he brought all his diseases, all of his sugar, potatoes, you know, everything that, that this indigenous population wasn't set up to consume, tobacco and, and alcohol. So now the diabetes, the renal dysfunction and disease, all manner of respiratory diseases mean that the indigenous population is sicker, dies younger, and all the other inequalities are the same, educational inequalities, uh, justice inequalities that you, that you would imagine in any country. I spent a bit of time working for a health service in far north Queensland and went round to a lot of the rural and remote communities. In some places, it's like seeing the videos that you see, you know, on the Feed the World videos in the, in the middle of Africa with the babies with the distended bellies. And this is a first world country. And that just feels wrong. Don't get me wrong. There's loads of work, as there is in any sophisticated society, trying to change that. But there is still poverty, health inequalities, deprivation and discrimination. What are you currently working on now? So I'm working with a big tertiary children's hospital. That, that So each state has one big children's hospital. So I'm working with Queensland and um, Children's House Queensland on their end of year financial position which is actually about the culture of the organisation and working with the leaders. And they've done a brilliant job. Financial year end here is June. So they've saved shed loads of money and they I'm doing a leadership lunch time set of sessions with all the senior leaders. So they get a bit of leadership input too. I'm working in New South Wales, another state. I'm working with the health system down there, doing some mediation between senior clinicians and senior nurses. That's fascinating. I also work in the wider public sector. So I'm working with the Gold Coast City Council and a couple of other city councils on their strategic plans and facilitating planning days and long term planning sessions with them about how they move forward. I'm still working in the NHS. So we've just finished a round of fantastic sessions with my business partner in the UK up in the South Yorkshire Ambassador Law ICS on self-care trauma, recovery. We delivered to that group right the way through COVID and their four sessions to support their self-care resilience, looking after themselves. And they've just been booked out, gone really, really well. So that's still ongoing. And I do about, I have about five or six one-to-one -one coaches at chief exec and exec level at any one time. And I've just finished running a facilitation program to teach other people how to facilitate in the public sector really well. The next one's starting in July. And then Diane and I have just met online before I talk to you about running that program online at the end of the year. So we're in a bit of developments about putting that online at the end of the year. So we will advertise that wildly on LinkedIn later in the year. And can you tell us about the Stella model? So the Stella model is a leadership model that I've been using for about 10 years. I created it, although it looks slightly different right at the beginning. I read Patrick Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions of a Team, and I didn't really like the fact that it had dysfunction in the title because that was not <laughs> really positive. Yeah, thank you for holding it up. It's a great book. Look, the content of the book is fantastic. It's like a seminal work, but 
I didn't like the dysfunction title. I'm I'm really into appreciative inquiry and I, I my job is to hunt for the good stuff and then replicate it rather than so having dysfunction in the title just didn't sit well with me. And five elements wasn't enough. There's an overlay at working in the public sector, a bureaucracy layer that you need to understand and work within. So I needed some more elements. It was originally called the Star Model, and then I tried to get IP on it, and there was loads of things with Star in the title, so it became the Stella Model. I had a book deal in the UK to write a book about it, and I never got around to it because I was too busy working with clients. When I got to Australia, we expanded a bit, took on a few more people, and I was able to spend a bit of time writing the book. And I felt like because I was on Australian soil, I needed to pay respects to the original owners of the land on which we work. There's a thing in Australia called the Acknowledgement of Country. So every time you have a meeting or you open a seminar, if you're an Indigenous person from that country, that piece of land that you're standing on, they will do a welcome to country, welcome to my country. If you're a non-Indigenous person, you do an acknowledgement of country where you say, I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present and future, past, present and emerging, and all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people on the lands on which I work, or the sea, or different strokes for different folks, however you say it. So I sought out the local Indigenous council, asked them for their support, ended up working with this brilliant guy who painted a picture of the stellar model that I was using and then told me the story of their spirits and how their spirituality works. And he created a whole story about the elements of the stellar model. So briefly, they are that every leader must lead purposely. Purpose and purposefully is at the centre of it. That's the why we lead. What What's our reason for being in this team, in this organisation? Then there's some more, there's practical elements to it, which is about what we do as leaders. We must lead strategically, decisively and accountably. And then there's four kind of how, how do we lead? What are we like when we're leaders? And that's clearly, kindly, curiously and vulnerably. So I talked to him about this model. He said this was how the ancient elders of the Indigenous tribes led. And he wrote a story about this. So we ended up co-writing the book together, which is beautiful, given that I'm welcomed into their country. And he we had such a great partnership. So Manu did the artwork and wrote this story about leadership in ancient times. And I then write what shows up in organisations now under each of these elements. What do we find in most organisations and what do we do to work with teams to help them improve in that area? And we developed a psychometric tool, 16 questions, two on each element that people can do for free online. And it tells you then, based on your answers, the maturity level of your team in regards to these elements. So what we do is we get the teams we work with to fill out the stellar model. I'm working tomorrow. I've got a team I'm working with tomorrow, 22 people in this larger group tomorrow morning. They've all filled out the stellar model. And what we know is that their Achilles heel, should we say, is strategically. That's where they all said they scored the least, whereas where they all scored beautifully high was on kindly. So they're lovely people being really nice to each other, but we need to look at whether they can plan for the long term. And that's the work we're going to do tomorrow. So we do a bit of diagnosis and then usually in six months, we get them to do it again and see whether they've improved after they've worked with us. It's just worked really well. So I've got loads of data now for a PhD that I've just been accepted for. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. I'm very pleased. And it's going to be roundabout. What are the best questions to ask teams to help propel them forward to action for improvement? When did you start thinking about the PhD? 
I've always wanted to do a PhD, but I only probably thought a couple of years ago that the data I'd already collected. I asked questions when I was collecting the data that could the data be used for research purposes, but I didn't specifically think about it to do with the PhD. So happily, although I've yet to get through the ethics committee on whether I can use all of the data, but the questions haven't materially changed Although the names of the elements have changed, they still meant the same things. I've got all of these thousands of pieces of data, but I will still want to do some qualitative study in the PhD too. What are you trying to answer or what are you trying to prove or explore in your PhD? I'm trying to find out. There's a school of thought that says when you work as a team coach, you should be completely neutral, which I agree with. And therefore, asking people to complete an assessment about their team before you work with them, it already influences the work that you're going to do because there's no such thing as a neutral question, right? As humans, when we ask a question, the neuroscience of our brain means that we want to answer the question, even if we don't know the answer. Like if I asked you, Tara, what's the name of my mom? Your brain doesn't stop because you couldn't possibly know the answer to that question. It starts to guess what could the name of Dawn's mom be? And then you want to answer it, right? So what I want to find out is, does asking the set of questions that we ask or any questions at all before you work with a group of people mean the outcome's different than if you'd have just gone in and worked with them straight away without asking any questions? I'm after finding out whether diagnosis pre-working with a team is useful or not. You've written a book and you're still a practitioner. How do you plan to write your PhD and work or will you take some time off or can you take some time off work? I like a really tough challenge. And (laughs) I remember when I was doing my master's degree, I was pregnant with my daughter right when I was doing my thesis, like typing up loads of it. So happily, when she was born, the sound of typing used to put her to sleep. And then I did one of my exams when I was breastfeeding her and it was a three hour law exam. And I had to feed her, feed her, feed her frantically before I ran into the exam. And then it's just a mess in the exam. And then I had to run out and feed her and feed her. And, you know, I just, I like a difficult challenge and I will find a way. The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you proudly in partnership with 10,000 donors and their Gob for Good campaign. Gob for Good is all about getting as many people as possible to join the stem cell registry. Only 3% of the UK are registered to be stem cell donors and only 0.4% of the global population. If you or a loved one have the devastating news that you have been diagnosed with a blood cancer, the chances of you finding your blood stem cell match is significantly reduced if you have a minority ethnic heritage. It is really, really simple. All you need to do is click into the show notes or visit the Gob for Good website at gobforgood.com and get yourself signed up to the registry. You could one day receive that life-saving call, or one day you may need that life-saving call. Now, let's jump back into this week's episode. So you mentioned very blasé, I always have work. There'll be people listening to this that run their own business or looking to make a move. What is it that you think you've done which has enabled you to always have work? What I said earlier about having the credibility to get a foot in the door at the beginning helps and has helped. The biggest thing that I always return to is what is my purpose and am I being true to myself in the work that I do? 
when I was younger, my purpose was finding out what the injustices were in the world, other people's injustices, and they'd make the bullets and I'd fire them. So I'd be quite mouthy on behalf of other people. And, you know, that got me into loads of trouble. And that was quite fun, but it was a bit career limiting, if I'm honest. As I've got older, <laughs> yeah. I've realised that my purpose is to help other people find their voice or use the voice they've got and be heard more correctly, I should say. When I work in, in organisations, without fail, I am still shocked by two things. The first is, however successful, brilliant in many ways, experienced chief executives and executives are, they still find it amazingly difficult to give honest, constructive and supportive feedback, clearly, and without all this padding that goes round the edges to make them feel better, but just confuses the person. And they find it really, really difficult to set an expectation and then hold people to account to it. So when I go into an organisation just for a chat, like you do when you, you know, they people, we think we might have a bit of a problem. Could you come in and tell us what you might do about it? When I say to them, so this is the work that I do. This is how I normally do it. I'll sit and observe you. And then I will say to you, that's interesting that you operate like that. What do you think that could be causing to happen in the organisation? When I'm working with chief executives, I was working with one the other day. I might have told you this story when we first met Tara, but I was working with a chief exec and brilliant man. One of the best chief execs of a public healthcare system that I've come across in Australia and in the UK, actually. I would work for him if I ever wanted to go back to full-time work, which I don't, by the way. But he really wanted people to tell him what they thought about this proposal that I put to him and that he was then put into the organisation about how we might work. So we were at this session. I was on Teams and I was he was in the room and I was watching him and he was really engaged. Everybody was laughing at what he was saying. They all clearly loved him. And he said, so tell me what you think. And then he kept talking. And he went, so no, I really need to know what you think. And then he just kept talking. So afterwards, we stayed on Teams and he said, how do you think that went? And I went, do you not, you know, why do you think? He said, I never got anything from them. And I said, why do you think that was? He said, I don't know. I said, shall we watch the recording back? So <laughs> we watched the recording back and he went, oh, I didn't shut up, did I? I went, no. So I think what I'm trying to say to you is I am respectful of people's fabulousness and the brilliant work that they do in organisations. And I am unashamedly unafraid of gently and graciously pointing out where they could do better, whoever that is. I don't have any fear of setting an expectation, holding people to account, having a difficult conversation or giving people feedback, because I fundamentally believe it's disrespectful not to have those conversations because you're not giving people an opportunity to be their best self. So if you've got their best interests at heart when you give feedback, it's beautiful feedback and it's a great conversation. Because I open that up and I support people to do that better, I often get called back in again and again in the mm -hmm. same organisation to work with different people, which, you know, I don't lecture, I don't criticise. I can see the good that people are doing and I support them to do that. And my question is, what could be even better if we did this? Yeah, I love that. People that are listening to this will be people that potentially could hire you. Can you share with me your facilitation process? When I teach facilitation skills, I use the OD cycle, the organisational development cycle. And when you get in a room, on the one I use, there's eight sections to it, eight steps, right? Mm. Getting in the room is step six. 
So the importance of steps one to five are often overlooked by facilitators or by people buying a facilitator, shall we say. And steps one to five are, number one is contracting an entry. So that's the first meeting you have with the person and you work out what they're up for and test them whether or not they're prepared to go really deep or they just want it really light or what are the objectives, what are they trying to solve. Then the next phase would be data gathering. So I will always, always either do a questionnaire and or talk to either all of the people who are coming to the session if there's not that many, or create a focus group and invite volunteers along so that they can help me craft the session. The next step, step three, is data analysis. So I'll get all of the data back. I'll look at it all and I'll think, oh, there's a few bear traps I might fall into. There's a few warning bells going off here. Here are the things I need to be mindful of. And if there's anything that comes up in that feedback that needs addressing before we get in the room, then I will make time for that to be addressed before we get in the room, like feedback to the leader or two people are biting chunks out of each other's heels and it's going to be really awkward with them in the room. We might need to mediate with them before we can actually get in the room. And then the next step is planning and that planning about what you're going to do to get the best out of the day, along with the person who's engaged you and that focus group team is really vital. So by the time you get in the room at step six, You've already created a psychological contract with the group that they can trust you because they've met you as a facilitator. But then the first thing you do in the room as one of the introductory sessions is you create a group agreement. And I'll never facilitate anything without creating a group agreement. Now, I do some work for the correctional services in Australia, and I work with convicts who have just come out of jail who might be in for a domestic violence crime or a drug and alcohol related crime or a violent related crime. And we do a 20 week program with them. And we could spend the first two hours of whole module creating this group agreement. So creating a group agreement isn't just a let's all be honest, let's have no phones on, whatever. If somebody says to me when I'm doing a, I'd like a bit of honesty in the room, I'll say, what's that look like? Are we going to know that we're being honest? You know, really work that because if that isn't done well, then the rest of it falls apart. And then finally, what I would say is I always say to people, Find a way to make yourself heard. If you, if, if you can't speak up in front of this group, leave a post-it under my laptop in the break or text me or whatever, and I'll find a way to, to raise the issue for you anonymously so the group can talk about it. I love that. I think I suppose my call to anybody that is looking to engage in a facilitator, whether it's in your group or whether it's in the kind of the data analysis, that is your opportunity to share what's on your mind, to share the experiences. And I think that for some reason, and it goes back to you said that leaders find it really hard to have bold, honest conversations. And even if it's off the record, they're still frightened. Somebody will say something and then it will come out. So in that data gathering bit, the role for the participant to participate and share and not go, oh, yeah, it's all fine. I think there is sometimes in my experience a hesitancy to really share something which is so important. One of the things I always say to people when I'm doing the data gathering, so if I do a one-to-one interview with 10 people before I'm going to get into the room, I'll ask them four or five fairly banal questions. What's it like to work in this team? What's the best thing? What would you do? If you were the boss for the day, what would you change? Gold dust comes out. But I always front it up by saying to them, what you tell me is going to be anonymous, but not confidential. And I'll do a minor plug for the book. 
But I go into this in a lot of detail about why it's important to to do that setup because you get some really good data that's quite hard hitting. And then the first session when I'm working with a leadership team over four or five sessions, the first session is a gallery walk, we call it, which is when we present all of the data back to them in the same language. We never, ever theme up the data. So if somebody says the two or three lines, we want those people in the room to recognize the words they use. The only time we'll change it is if it could identify them or identify someone else. And we do, we tell them we're going to do that. But really getting that information out, it's a almost a visceral moment when everybody thinks, oh, okay, she did hear me. That's exactly yeah. what I said. I recognize. So this is a safe space. And she's handled that data quite well, actually, because nobody knows that was me. So this is a safe space. I now feel like I can talk up because if you just run an away day for somebody, you've got no idea what the leader's really like. You've got no idea what the psychological safety of that team really is. So no surprise then that sometimes people won't speak up. What's the thing you love most about your work? I love the light bulb moments, I suppose I'll call them. So when I'm doing one to one coaching, I was I was working with a new client. We were in a chemistry setting session last week and she was testing me out to see if she wanted to be coached by me. And I was testing her out to see if, you know, I wanted to coach her. And she was telling me about she's she's not from the public sector and she's now the chief executive of a public public sector arms length body. And she said, I go to this department meetings and I drag my team along and I'm saying to them on the way there, this is going to be ridiculous. It's full of bureaucracy. And she was really grumpy about it. And I went, interesting. I wonder what kind of leader your team think they've got when you talk like that. She just looked at me. And I went, I wonder what other responses you could bring to that moment next time you go. You know, when you can look in at somebody and you could see the cogs going around in her mind, she went, they probably think I'm really petulant, don't they? I went, they might do. Yeah. Sounded a bit petulant to me. She went, oh, oh, right then. She went, I think we're going to work really well together. That was a great call. And, you know, really, you don't say anything. You just go in, hmm, think about this. And that's the same with teams. It's beautiful work, the work I'm doing with uh, Children's Health Queensland at the moment, because they've just got to that stage where they're off and running. It's a bit like any of your listeners that have got teenagers. When they first come back to you and say things like, you know, a phrase that you've taught them when they're a child and they come back. And I said to my friend, blah, blah, and you think, my work's here's done. That's my phrase. (laughs) I've influenced this team and and they're out in the world. So when you're in an organisation and you've helped them with a change programme and at first it was really tough and they didn't get it. And now they're using all the phrases and language and thinking they invented it. That's just beautiful. I just love to see that fly and they go off and just change what you introduce to them in a way that will make it work there. And it's just it's delightful, really is. What is the most challenging part of your work? When sometimes I'll get invited in, I'll get recommended to somebody and I'll go and sit with the senior team and I can see that they're in a really difficult place. You know, there's quite a negative response. And the chief exec or somebody senior will say, no, what we'd like you to do here is this. We just like you to do this. And it goes against my values or the way that I want to run my business. And I usually say, well, that's lovely. I'll recommend someone else who can work with you in that way because that's not how I work. And I know, I absolutely know they need me or someone like me, somebody who works in that systemic way, as opposed to, you know, one of the big four coming in, looking at them, writing a report, giving them the report and going away again. And 
I've had to learn that boundaries are really, really important, both to my business's reputation and to my own self-care. So trying to push a boulder up a hill in an organisation that's not ready for the power of the kind of work that we do in my organisation, I did that a couple of times and it's just exhausting. And I, I just refuse to work with people who are not ready for me. And you know what? In about six months, they usually come back and say, we've tried a few other things. We'd like to give you a go now. And I say, well... Only if you're really ready. Let's test it out and see. What's the duration of time you work with a client typically? Or is there no typical? There isn't really a typical. So the client that I started, I came to Australia for, I'm still working with them. I don't work with them all the time and I'll do lots of little different things with them. And But I'm a sort of, when I was an internal, you know, director, exec director of people and culture, people in OD, you're always the confidant of the chief exec or the kind of the Jiminy Cricket sort of conscience, confidant, etc. I sort of have that role in lots of organisations where I won't hear from them for a couple of months. And then they'll say, Dawn, we've got this problem. You think you could help us now? Say, well, OK, let's talk. So I don't I've never ended a relationship with a client where it's, I've never been able to you know, not, not go back again. But a typical engagement for this team coaching thing that I've been talking about is probably about six months. So an initial diagnostic with the Stellar model at the beginning, four to six half day or full day sessions, and then you know maybe about a month apart, and then a diagnostic at the end. We do a couple of them, and we might do that in the top team, and then they'll say, could you do it with our other teams in different parts of the business? Well, I'm inspired. Very, very inspired. Thank you so much. I've learned so much. It's always nice speaking. You know, we all do it differently. Everyone's got their own model. We all do it differently. But it's fascinating. And I definitely I think a few light bulbs have gone off in my mind. Where I've gone, oh, don't do that again. <laughs> so thank you so much. If people want to find out more about your work, where is the best place to find you? Find me on LinkedIn, Dawn Jarvis, author of Leading Corporate Clans. I show up there. Or you can go to my website, which is people and OD, organizational development, people and OD partners.com. Excellent. Thank you so much. You are welcome. so much for joining us if you like what you hear i would absolutely love it if you left us an itunes rating and five star review i know many of you give us a shout out on social media which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast so please come and find us on twitter at thc primary care on instagram and on linkedin just look for tara humphrey and if you're not subscribed to our newsletter please do you get to hear more insights more confessions some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week. So click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.